This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following is a presentation of Morning Drive Media. From the southernmost point of Dorne to the lands of always winter, what is west of west and westeros and the shadows in the east, this is Casterly Talk. I'm Ken Napsock for another edition, our 96 in an ongoing podcast that is right now in the middle of a Game of Thrones rewatch. On Casually Talk, we cover all of Game of Thrones, Song of Ice and Fire, all the books, waiting for the books, news. We are going to get to some of the news. That's right. There is a lot of news. Maybe not on this episode. We're going to continue our rewatch. I think I want to do soon just a news update of all the Big, big, little, big, little bits. That's right. Big, little bits of Game of Thrones information. House of the Dragon, animated, era, all those kind of things. Even a movie. Wow, there's so much. It sounds like sounds like HBO really wants to win the streaming wars with their HBO Max. And then this might be a tool. Those streaming wars are going to get us all a lot of content in the weeks, months, and years ahead. Hello, everybody. I'm Ken Napsock. If you're watching here on the uh, video version here on the Casually Talk YouTube page, welcome. It's just me uh, talking today by myself. But if you're listening on the podcast and have been listening, I appreciate you on that side as well. Uh, we are now uh, co-produced by Morning Drive Media, my longtime company, and then the Good People Association over there. Uh, Josh, Mark, Eric, me, and uh, all of you founders and Bucket Club members, we appreciate all of you. This is one of the first shows kind of under that banner, co-producing it with Morning Drive Media, which you know means I'm co-producing it with myself. It's, it's, it's complicated, I guess. Kind of like a Game of Thrones battle. Uh, so go over to thegpa.fun if you want to join the association or get more information or all those kind of good things. For right now, uh, I am here, and I always, I always seem to. It seems like I, I kind of address a lot, and then some people will write me like, "Hey, you don't need to address that while you're by yourself. We, we like it when you're just a man in a room rambling to some cameras and, a, and into a microphone." But I love having. Rachel Cushing and Andres Cabrera, Lon Harris, who's uh, been uh, gone a little bit too long from this show, and Thomas Risley, Mark Kamar, Michelle Boyd, a lot of other people and names, um, some who haven't even been on the show yet. In the switch and in the last few months, it, it, the recording schedule, I've not been able to present to anyone a set time 
or uh, even for a week to week basis, a set time that allows it, uh, you know, people to come on based on their schedules and everything. So I'm trying to work all that out as as uh, the load of the the GPA uh, launch uh, has kind of uh, taken precedent over over uh, other normal recording schedules for me. Uh, but I promise, and soon the ultimate plan when we all can really get into studios again. A lot of it will be done here at my home studio, but uh, we we'll get in the studio and I, I, we're going to have a House of the Dragon show. We're going to have a GOT Song of Ice and Fire news show, maybe a Song of Ice and Fire book club when the book finally comes out. George R. R. Martin saying, uh, "You know, I wrote uh, hundreds of pages. We're almost ready to go. Only got like two thousand more to go." I'm paraphrasing there. One thing George Martin did write, George R. R. Martin, unless you think it's uh, the Beatles producer, he wrote this episode. This episode that we are going to be talking about today, this is, ooh, this is a great one. Blackwater, season two, episode nine, the 19th episode overall in the series. Original air date, May 27, 2012. Director Neil Marshall really coming in and just giving us an amazing episode. George R.R. R. Martin is the writer on this. Of course, as we know, what was it, the uh, first four seasons? Yeah, doing the quick, yeah, four, first four seasons, he always wrote an episode. That was always the plan. That was kind of in the in the deal when he when he kind of uh, signed up for all of this. And then he just felt, um, and he got too busy. It was distracting him from writing and working on other things. And then you can read into that if you want. And the conspiracy theories that he pulled back. And it, 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 yeah, some, some of his comments around that time started to be a little bit more critical of the show, I think. But I, I'm not here for the conspiracy theories. I'm here for this great episode that George R. R. Martin Wrote cinematog- cinematographer Sam McCurdy, who um, shot the hell out of this episode, and edited by Oral Norioti, who, uh, O.T., O.T., I don't know. I get, we'll ask him sometime. This is a wonderfully edited episode. Uh, <laughs> what's what's known about this episode, if you're a Game of Thrones fan of, of um, any level, some of you might be new, and I, sh- oh, I want to know, so there's, because of the GPA and, Maybe you might be finding this podcast you know, that's on his own YouTube channel or anything like that. Um, I will say this. Uh, we Full spoilers uh, for the entire series. This is a rewatch, and in doing the rewatch, I, I am looking at the themes and lessons of each episode and, and, and focusing on them for what they mean for that episode. But more, there's sometimes the fun foreshadowing and things with more meaning or even sometimes things that are cute or bittersweet or sad that we watch now that we have the show uh, behind us completely. But I'm also trying to really show that a lot of these uh, things, a lot of these lessons, a lot of these themes, if you will, they connect to uh, the entire story. They are there. They are present. And I hear a lot about, well, that plot thread didn't go anywhere. And this and that, what happened with that character? And sometimes things do fiddle off um, with a, you know, a little less energy than we want them. I, you know, as a Jorah fan, I, I, thought, I even feel his uh, grayscale thing sometimes. Uh, oh, okay, he's healed. Like, I understand those complaints and some of that stuff is there, but I also think some of the bigger questions, some of the bigger problems, uh, you wouldn't be feeling that way if you were paying attention to each episode as part of a song, as part of this just lesson, part of this sonnet that rolls on and on and on. It all kind of connects for me, and that's part of what I'm doing, and I've been having a lot of fun going back. So that is why this is not just a retroactive review for the episode in the moment or in the, you know, the moment at uh, the time capsules there, so to speak, this connects to the big picture. So I want to say that. So if some of you are just kind of finding me, maybe through the good people association or whatnot, spoilers, maybe if you haven't watched the series, 
get through it or watch, uh, well, get through it and then come back to this. I'll be here for you. We're not going anywhere. Again, original air date, May 27, 2012. And, and without a doubt, this was the first great battle. This was that kind of um, great episodes, without a doubt, in season one. Big things. And, and season two is a slow burn. We've been talking about that a lot of just like, even season two, episode seven, great episode. Does it, you know, you kind of could almost think, how does it fully connect to what's going on in this season? But we, you know, I really contend, yes, Ned's uh, decapitation, uh, Ned's death, maybe that's a softer way to say it, was season one, episode nine. And, and I keep saying this Blackwater season two, episode nine. Now we're going, oh, this is kind of the formula. We build up to a big thing in, in episode 9, episode 10. Uh, we're left to de- uh, deal with it and then look forward to the next season. Got it, got it, got it. So I think it was after this season. So for 4, 5, and 6, and then and then a little different in 7 and 8, of course. That's that's why we started looking at episode 9 as, as the episode and, and wondering, does, is the show building? What's it building to? Is it going too slow? Is it going too fast? What's it building to? And I, I think season two kind of really set that template there. But we are coming off a great first season. HBO's um, got a success on their hands, but, you know, got to go back in time. They had, I think they were doing year-by-year uh, year commitments. I don't think they had said we're committed to the long run yet at the end of season two. I think by this time, maybe, yes, someone could live uh, bring up the actual details of that. But I do kind of remember of thinking, oh, good, they're going to get a season three. The budget was bigger than season one, but still less. And again, these are stories that a lot of fans know. That's what I was starting to say there. Of, of, of a Game of Thrones fan of, of, of any um, uh, any level kind of has heard these stories and heard the conversations and the think pieces and the podcasts on the show did so much with so little. But I, I just don't think you can overlook that, especially when it comes to Blackwater. Uh, and George R. R. Martin comes in and knows that they have to make these budget choices. Uh, knows, uh, has talked about, you know, his least favorite scene in the show is, is the hunting scene in season one because it's just four dudes strolling through a forest and it, it should have been more, but they couldn't because of the budget. And so many things in a lot of shows, even, uh, you know, The Mandalorian, I think there's been some budget decisions. And so you might, I, I still contend that the pulse rifle uh, it might cost a little too much to uh, destroy a, a <laughs> disintegrated Jawa. And that's why I think it kind of went away. I have no facts on that, nothing. This is just total internet uh, guessing. But budget choices are big. And George O. Martin comes in, he takes this episode, takes this big scene, and changes a lot of the battle. The battle is smaller. The battle's at night. Uh, the book, there's a, a, a chain, big chain that comes up that traps it in. There's the boats that kind of become a bridge for Stannis and his men to go from one shore to the other. There's a lot of those little details. George knew, uh, and, and I think some of the writing, if you if you read some of it, and you can go into some of the behind-the-scenes stuff uh, of, um, uh, of some of the show. You know, they could, um, uh, you know, George will tell you, well, there's quotes of him saying, you know, maybe he handed in big scripts, and then they had to kind of, uh, uh, you know, write it all, um, cut things down, and just, again, make those tough choices. And George, uh, George knew that, but George also just kind of, Wrote what he wrote. Um, so uh, this episode, uh, this it was a pretty much described as pretty much a month straight of night shoots, which, well, um, is nothing uh, compared to what's going to come later on in season eight. Where like, what is it, seventy two straight uh, days of night shoots, which are, you know, uh, it's not easy work, kids. It's not easy work, kids. We're not no one's heroes here making this, but it's not easy work. Uh, this is before we get it. It's member. It's it's remembered for the battle, which I, I'm one of those people. I think some of our listeners, Eric Monroe's name comes to mind. Is, we still kind of list this one 
as our favorite battle for whatever that means. Now, um, I think, you know, some of the bigger hard home and, and battle of the bastards long night. I mean, I'm just mesmerized in awe of some of the things I pulled off in the long night in the battle of Winterfell. But yeah, this episode, I think, uh, and we're gonna, we got a call coming from Donna Long that touches on this too. Just like some of the things that they had to do in this episode, make it not just a great battle. This is one of the great complete episodes to me in Game of Thrones. And I think that's important to know. We're going to dive into what this episode might be about. Might I say, the reason I say might, this is just my view on it. My interpretation. No expert. Just a man with some cameras and a microphone. All right. This is the age we live in now. Everyone's a broadcaster. Um, all right. Let's not get negative. Um, that's my perspective. And guess what? Hey, this is, this is what I think this episode is really about. Perspectives. There's also style of rule. All of season two is kind of style of, of rule. Remember, this is uh, Clash of Kings. This is the War of Five Kings. And I think going back to episode one of season two, you're literally presented different leadership options, and we're going to study how they approach that and how that might uh, turn out if one of them should win for the, for the, for the realm and... and and who do you really want? And who are you rooting for? And is it actually who you want? I, I, that's what I think season two is 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 about, uh, among other things. But it's about it, it overall. In this episode, we really have this style of rule on display. We have Joffrey and the false bravado uh, and fear. Uh, you know, he's got you know uh, heart's pain, and you can sense he's going to lick blood off the sword after I kill his brother, after I kill Stannis, all that stuff. But Joffrey knows he's afraid. Uh, you got Stannis on the shores, uh, you, you know, attacking from the front. Well, he's in the, another ship, but then he gets to the front. And you have Cersei, who is the queen. And she's got a false front because she feels she has to put, it, uh, put up a false front. In many ways, she's very right, as we're going to discuss. But she's got scheming uh, plans and truths behind that and maybe a, just a disregard and, and uh, no love for the people she's supposed to lead. And, and it's just different styles of rule that play here. And then... Uh, Tyrion emerges as perhaps the, the person with, uh, I don't know, the best style of rule. And Sansa has a great moment of uh, leadership, what I consider one of her first real moments. This episode is also about hard truths. Now, here's the thing. We say this a lot, hard truths. This has been a theme in many episodes of Game of Thrones, and I think that will, that can, will continue. But particularly in season three, and it made me think about this, excuse me, season two. It made me think about this. Uh, season two in Hard Truths, the relationship is strong. Sansa's faced set with several here, and uh, in analyzing it, it made me think about some of the other conversations we've had in season two already about hard truths. And I, I think that might be because season two is kind of the season when many of our characters, particularly the young ones, have to look at the world they're raised in. Uh, which is perhaps the world that we as, as fans, as viewers, were presented in season one. You are presented with heroes, villains, kings, queens, the charming kind of uh, beautiful face and hair, Jamie Lannister, but boo, hiss, we don't like him. We don't like Cersei. We don't like the Lannisters. We like the Starks. Ah, the Night's Watchers, this great order of men protecting the realm, shields in the night, swords in the night. We're presented this kind of classic world, and this is also in Song of Ice and Fire, now here uh, in, in uh, Game of Thrones. It's the DNA of the story. And we're presented this. But then season two is, is uh, to me, the season where we really start looking at what's going on. Oh, yes. Does season one have some of that stuff? Yeah, we start to see some different sides of Jamie and, 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 and Cersei. But we are presented a hero in Ned Stark, and that hero is taken from us. 
and the world kind of collapses around us. We have a woman walking into a fire and merging with dragons. And what's our view on that? We have a, um, a young hero, a brooding uh, bloke heading north beyond the wall with his uh, mentor to take on what's ever over there. And, and season two kind of says, let's look at that. Let's look at what that really is. And let's give all these characters these hard truths that are going to form them going forward. And every one of them is faced with it. Rob Stark, a lot of things, season uh, two, episode eight, uh, and wanting to break his vow and why, and being faced with uh, who he wants to be from Talisa and Theon, who he's trying to be and the mistakes he's made. And Jon Snow gets just slapped in the face with hard truths from Egret. Just some of the things that make him or the things that maybe start to break him down so that he can be remade later. Jon Snow faces that in season two. And this is Sansa's episode. It's the Battle of Blackwater Bay. But for me, Sansa just is presented with these hard truths and we have this world that we are living in in a world that, Nova, I'm a huge Lord of the Rings fan, but like that is that is a classical heroes and villains type of tale. Star Wars has that too. Now, Star Wars asks tough questions and it analyzes, it deals with redemption and the fall of the Jedi raises big questions, but right, it is it is heroes. It is villains. It is uh, red lightsabers, blue lightsabers, and green lightsabers, and, and yellow now too. Um, and you all know, if you, if you know me, I dig deep into Star Wars for hours every, every week. Game of Thrones does, and Song of Ice and Fire does get a chance to go a little deeper, go a little grittier, go a little dirtier, go a little more dull, and therefore really just convolute everything. And that world that we've been presented in season one is often confusing. It's a confusing, complicated mashup of perspectives. And that's what goes uh, flows into the big theme for this episode. George wrote this episode, as we know, uh, and he wrote the entire story, book and show. Uh, you know, uh, it doesn't matter to me. This is his story. And in that DNA, like we just talked about, is is these perspectives because uh, George R. R. Martin is great at presenting you one situation and making you care or at least to be invested in everyone in that one situation. We have the invasion or defense of King's Landing. We have the Battle of Blackwater Bay. That is a thing. That is a truth. That is a fact. That is something that is happening. And then we have all these characters looking at it from different perspectives. And um, some of those perspectives are tough to say wrong, but their interpretations seem to be wrong and that they're still being driven forward. Um, and some of the perspectives are, ooh, this is what's really going on. And some of them are, I see bold, but I'm here and I've got to fight. And this is what we're at. And, and James Hibbard addressed it in, in his book, Fire Cannot Kill Dragons. I cannot recommend that book enough. Such a fun, quick read. I think it's been a few episodes since I've mentioned it. I was, I was mentioning it a lot. He mentioned it directly for this episode, that this battle in season two presents it, all these characters, it's Clash of Kings, it's War of Five Kings, it's all these, it's these hard truths, and that world you thought you knew is now something different here in season two, and it all builds up to this battle. And who are you rooting for? Ah, oh, you hate Stannis? Now, I did wear my Stannis shirt today. Um, hate Stannis? That's fine. But you don't necessarily hate Davos. And he's on Stannis' side. We got some great Davos stuff here. All right, you hate Cersei. You still view her as, as, as the villain, as one of the villains. The House Lannister, you don't like it. But maybe you don't hate Sansa. And what happens to Cersei in this episode might happen to Sansa. Who do you root for? You hate Tywin. You just don't like Tywin. Same thing. You know, you're not moved by his scenes with, with Arya this season. That's fine. But maybe you're there for Loris's revenge. 
We had to watch uh, watch Loris. It, it it seems like long ago, but we had to watch Loris. Uh, you know, watch his uh, his lover die, his king die right in front of him. Couldn't do anything. Now he wants revenge, and the Tyrells are working with the Lannisters. You know, strange bedfellows indeed. But you, you kind of want to root for Loris in the situation, even if you don't want to root for Tywin. And this battle is a battle of perspectives, and it makes it just layered and interesting and unique and full of tension and that just guides every scene almost to me. We start with Davos and Mathos talking about well, going home. Mathos, Davos' son, the only one here in the show, uh, more sons in the book of course. Mathos has been full in on Melisandre's uh, uh, lies or beliefs whatever you want to say. Again, perspectives on Melisandre might change. Might be different. Um, and, he, and he says to his father, after 20 years, you're going home, you know? You're going home, Dad. And that's his perspective on the situation. And Davos is like, I, this, is, this place is no longer home. This is no longer home. And they get in this great conversation, if you really just analyze it. It's such a great scene. And I got my Davos beard. I was going to trim my beard today, but I knew I was going to be talking about Davos. Um, his son has that great quote about, uh, you know, this is the royal fleet. Davos kind of says, there's a lot of royal fleets right now. But Mathos' perspective has spurned him and many to take action to serve their needs, not the city's needs necessarily, which is interesting. It's going to come factor back into Tyrion's big moment later in the show. I'm not saying that Mathos and, and anyone fighting for Stannis are believing in lies, but they're certainly taking action on their own perspectives, which is at times, all we can do, but I think it's important to maybe factor in the other perspectives, which might be what Davos is doing. And he's one of those guys. He believes in this. He believes this is this is right, but he understands what they're getting into. Again, complicated. No, no right or wrong. I'm, that's what I'm not saying. Mathos is necessarily believing in lies, but just listen to this scene. You can call him naive, but it's a dangerous level of naivete. Because it's a, a level that's getting them to storm a city, to storm a capital, and storm a capital building. They believe in this perspective so much that they have, they have been rallied around. And, and when you learn later on that Melisandre, uh, well, I, believe, I believe she believed in Stannis. But later on in the show, I mean, it's, uh, sometimes I fake stuff. Sometimes I drop a little thing in water and boo, and I get them to believe. Almost to the point where she... Doubts and perhaps even loses her own powers, which is, is about her fun. That's, that's her story here. We don't have enough Melisandre in season two. She made quite an impact. She's not, not here. She'll, she'll be back in episode 10. Mathos has rallied and met so many are rallied behind that. Now, some are just serving with Stannis because that's, all, that's the only choice they have, without a doubt. But Mathos represents that kind of uh, uh, the person uh, just kind of spurred, uh, spurned on and, 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 and taking action based on Something that just uh, very much might not be true and definitely doesn't consider the perspective of the city. Davos says, they don't see a liberator. Talking about the men on the walls. They see a stranger coming to set their city on fire. I've written down that quote to bring it back in another scene as well. We have the perspective on the bells. The bells start ringing. Now, this comes out of a great scene we're going to talk about a little bit later with Braun and the Hound. Love that scene. Love the, the let's have a drink, one more drink before the war. Um, that scene is interrupted by uh, the bells. It's like the school bell ringing at the end of class just to save you. Save it in the nick of time. But I love that you hear the bells and Varys gives his perspective on what they mean. I've always hated the bells. They, they ring for horrible things. Uh, King's death, 
conquering armies, I'm paraphrasing, and weddings, um, says uh, 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 Tyrion. Uh, um, or Varys and Tyrion backs him up in there. Great scene, great moment. And this leads into um, uh, a great little moment with uh, Var. I love the the Varys going, Podrick, is it? Uh, and and uh, the the uh, back and forth between Varys and Tyrion there. It's, it's some of the best stuff in the show, uh, all seasons. But this is, to me, also a scene about perspectives. And Tyrion has a certain perspective on who should lead or be the hero in this battle. He has learned a lot about himself this season. He and Varys have already had the conversation about, you know, I'm, I'm feeling good at this game. Varys is like, yeah, you are good at this game. We got more games coming with Danny and her dragons and one game at a time, my friend, one game at a time. Uh, Tyrion knows himself, but now he is out of that realm. He's in a realm that, um, from his perspective, is something he, he should not be. He's, he's leading the defense of the city. He's planning it. He, he, can get, he can wrap his head around that, planning it. That's something he's good at. Tactics and strategies, right? Same thing. Um, he can do that. He can do that. He's been doing that the entire season. He's he feels he got he's got a good plan going here, but he doesn't feel he should be the leader. He doesn't feel he should be the hero. Uh, in his mind, I think uh, it should be the king. Uh, we know that's not going to be the case. He knows that. Or, or, or a hero should look a lot more like his brother, who's not here. Maybe even his father, who's not here. But Varys provides another perspective. Says, it's you that could save the city. He believes that after he tells his story of um, uh, his perspective on dark magic and Stannis, which is Varys' perspective again on what's happening, almost tying back into Mathos, saying, hey, we're coming. To, they, they, everyone here wants us to come back. And Varys is representing the side that's like, no, our perspective on Stannis is uh, not uh, sit foot, uh, uh, suited for King uh, if he sets foot in this town. Uh, Tyrion doesn't really believe it, right? Uh, Varys says, you look well-suited for battle. And Tyrion says, well, I'm not. Varys uh, hopes that he's wrong. Um, it's all about perspective for me. Perspective in the big uh, who should win, who should lose, but also perspective of yourself. What you think about yourself and how you fit into the story is huge. And often that changes. And just when you think maybe you got a, a handle on it, you're a hero from nowhere. I'll take that. I'll change my perspective to accept that I'm a hero from nowhere. Suddenly you're presented with something else. Maybe your lineage is, uh, presents a challenge to you. And can you overcome that? What is your perspective on that? Uh, it, it, it is how we look at things, perspectives. And, and, and I often think how we look at ourselves is very important. And Tyrion and Sansa and a lot of the characters in this particular episode have their perspectives challenged and are forced to either change or forced to uh, learn and start thinking about a different way. The bells are ringing and Mantha says they're welcoming in their new king. Davos says, I've never known bells to mean surrender. And one of my favorite moments, they want to play music, let's give them music. Drum! Love that scene. Uh, there's no depth analysis in that moment. I just like war drums. All right? I don't know why. Good old war drums. Give me some war drums. A lot of other stuff here. Uh, I, I might be jumping around. We don't. I generally don't like to do it scene uh, moment by moment, but it generally flows. Big swig of drink here. If you're listening on the podcast, I don't edit that stuff out. It's me rambling. Talking about Sansa's perspectives here. They're being challenged. They've been challenged from the moment she set foot in King's Landing, and she's already experienced some horrendous stuff. And she's going to experience some horrendous stuff. But look at where she ends up. 
by the way, I'm not saying I enjoy everything that character went through or felt every little beat of it was necessary, but let's just focus on the story presented to us and look at where the show takes Sansa. And a lot of this goes, go back to this episode and getting to see, getting to learn Cersei's perspective on being queen, Cersei's perspective on the conquering heroes that Sansa just might want to win. You know, that moment of Cersei's like, oh, you'd, oh, you'd like that, right? Oh, you, I can see it in your eyes. And Sansa's caught. Cersei knows, yeah, you secretly want Stannis to win. But Sansa's learning, you know, Cersei's perspective on being a queen, these conquering heroes, and how to survive this. And yes, Sansa's shocked, but later on shows her real first skills, her first moment as leader here. Diving into some of the Cersei stuff, I... I, I just we we I can't. Gosh, it just this is this is why this I call this just one of the great complete episodes of Game of Thrones. Um, and some episodes aren't going to seem as complete just because of what they are. I, I think uh, even Prince of Winterfell last week's a great, it's a great episode. I think season uh, two episode seven's a better episode, but you know it is what it is. And some things are there to move the plot forward to set things up or. The small character moments, and and this episode just has this giant battle, and then some of the best, quiet, intimate character building moments in it, and the Cersei, the Cersei stuff is, is uh, is is it's just amazing. It's next level. Lena Headey, just next level stuff. This whole uh, sequence for her begins when she's very sober. The the little tiny scene with Pycelle. Uh, getting the tears of Lise, and just, you know, she's not she's not hammered there. She gets a little hammered. She follows a little bit in Robert's footsteps. This is uh, all, what Tyrion remarks at one point in season two, you're drinking a lot more. And uh, I, have, I have a theory on that here in a second, or not a theory, but just an idea behind uh, what it represents for Cersei. Though we do love Cersei taking her big sips of wine, right? Cersei uh, is taking, obviously, great joy in telling her truth, her perspective to Sansa. And gives an absolute heart-wrenching tale of her life, her place in this world that that conversation that, that you cut back to her at one point, and she said, "You know, my brother and I uh, looked alike. We looked so much alike that sometimes father couldn't tell us apart, like her own father, which is this you know reflection on Tywin, perhaps as a father." But out of that, she says, "I could never understand why they treated us different." And Sansa's taking this in. GOT, Song of Ice and Fire, and definitely the TV show, with uh, that, I'll say, have fumbled female characters a lot. There's a lot of times that they've, um, big ways, maybe small ways, they've, they've fumbled the female characters. I wish there was more uh, female writers in the writer's room over the course that's been discussed, and, 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 I, and I back that up. I, I agree with that, that perspective, uh, something that's shared with me. But I think the story, and I do think the, the show, I don't know, it just has a lot to say. It's very clear on what it's saying. But what this world has done, what this world has done to uh, the women in this world, it is a continuing cycle of mistreatment, devaluing, sexualization, abuse, and every one of the female characters in this story have to uh, story have to continuously overcome it. And some succeed, some succeed better than others, some fail, some die. Um, season three is uh, some powerful reminders there. And again, well, I well, I, I think the show at times has um, 
had a little hard edge approach to it sometimes. I, I think an over reliance on the rape trope or uh, you know superfluous nudity early on, uh, which slowly started to fade a little bit. I think with the show uh, later on. Just my take on it there. You know, I think I love the Braun Hound scene. Uh, did we need a completely uh, naked woman sitting on Braun's lap? Eh, probably not. Uh, we got it. It's there. It's part of the scene, part of the show, and it's part of this world. It's part of our world. I, I'm fine with it. But I, again, I, I just, but I, I go, so all the criticisms, criticisms I understand and all the, not even like, hey, I love the show, but let's talk about this moment. Those are great conversations to have. But I, I go to this, this Cersei stuff here and I cannot help. I cannot help but think, and Cersei is right. Her perspective is right. I do think there are choices after that we uh, may think have uh, have gone wrong for Cersei. Choices I think some of them she had to make, just like I think there's a lot of choices that Daenerys didn't just have to make, but that she should have made, and uh, they propel her character forward and sometimes um, in a wrong direction, but I, I, you know, Again, it's the choices. You move forward, choice, move forward, choice, move forward. And that's where Cersei has failed a little bit. But I mean that in a what can we learn from the story? What can we learn from this character? And every one of these scenes, oh, it's seen stealing, not even stealing because she's in the spotlight. It's seen chewing up. It's so amazing. Lena Headey is just, just absolutely the best. I always say, Every shot, every flicker of Lena Headey's eyes tell a story for her character in, in the past and in um, the present and what she wants for the future. Every shot, she's telling a story with her face. It's amazing stuff. And this episode is some of the best stuff. And um, I got to say, I, I was... I, I I've always I was a Cersei fan enough uh, in season one just because of again you just sometimes in awe of what this performer is doing what this actor is doing with this character, but after this episode, I I can never escape the fact that I'm kind of always rooting for her. You can't see it now. I have some art up there. There's an artist named Nan Lawson does some great pop art. You can um, pop culture related art. You can check her website out. Nan Lawson. I have, uh, I have, I'm looking at it now. I have Daenerys and I have uh, Cersei. And also she just recently did a Sansa uh, art piece. And that's actually on my, uh, on the way to me via the, the mail. And I, uh, I love those because every one of those uh, characters, uh, Cersei, uh, Daenerys and, and Sansa are uh, put in this world, uh, a world that's against them. And they succeed and overcome it in their own ways. At times they fail in their own ways, and at times they are victimized by it, um, even against their best intentions or, or, or whatever. And, and, and I just am so sometimes inspired by these moments and characters. And this episode is where I was really like kind of behind Cersei on some stuff. She has her armor on in this episode, and that's what I say. She literally has just a great design. I mean, God bless it. It's a, it's a you know. I'd wear it. It's just so good. Cersei's uh, costume, uh, the, the costuming on the shows won awards for reasons. It's so good. Cersei has her armor on, literally, but figuratively, I, I think that armor is in her glass. I, I, I think, I think it's her holding that wine, um, helping to not just take the edge off, but helping her to um, deal with what's going on. Uh, it is a shield, and she explains quite explicitly at one point what some of her weapons are and where they are located. Great moment, great scene. And I, it's tragic, right? It shouldn't have to be this way. Again, she starts this episode pretty sober. 
getting the poison that she feels probably if things don't go her way, it's going to be the end of her son and perhaps the end of her to needing this weapon or needing these weapons, but needing this, this, this armor, the wine. And I really love when she forces Sansa to take uh, her armor by get Sansa a drink. Well, I'm not thirsty. I, I didn't, I'm not offering you water. I think she's offering Sansa armor, right or wrong. That's what I always have taken Cersei uh, doing in that moment. Um, and she tells, uh, she just, and Cersei loves it. And, and they talk about it in the, in the, in the post credit kind of behind the scenes stuff. Just Cersei's just reveling in this, reveling in breaking this girl's uh, view of the world, changing Sansa's perspective, or at least going, hey, your perspective of all of this. Kings and queens and courts and city and war and conquerors and kings and heroes and villains and boo, you are wrong about a lot of it because you haven't been told. And I'm going to I'm going to tell you. Love Ned Stark. Love Sean Bean. The show itself, the story itself criticizes him often from season two on. Ned's stubbornness killed him. His honor killed him. Ned's a good dude. He's a good guy. He's made mistakes. He's not perfect. But no one could argue. No one in the story seems to argue. I think even Cersei would admit, yeah, 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 no. Big old uh, Ned, dumb Ned is, yeah, he was a good guy. Jamie Lannister has some thoughts, but we know Jamie's uh, perspective of, of Ned is built on a lie, but built on a story that Ned had to keep up. But every one of these characters, they all agree Ned is good. But the show continues to question about what he did and the sins of the father a little bit and how he didn't prepare his children as best. I think he prepared his children better than I think even the story wants to give him credit for at times. Again, I love Ned Stark. But in this scene, in this moment, in all these moments with Cersei and Sansa, I, I keep asking, what would Ned have told her? If perhaps Ned, of course, probably would have been on the battle lines, but if Ned's down below, and also if Ned's alive, he might have been fighting with Sant, uh, with with Stannis, and Sansa wouldn't be there. But if if perchance Ned was down there, or Ned was about to send Sansa down there while he goes down to the battle, what would he say? We love our what ifs here, at Daily Thrones, and I got to imagine he he might say something along those lines. Oh, it's going to be okay, Sansa. Just just wait here. Everything's going to go good because he wants to protect her. Arya and Sansa have those uh, conversations later on. Love, father. Didn't give us. The full picture didn't give us the truth. And so therefore, our perspectives on a lot of the things in this world um, uh, were incomplete. They didn't, we didn't understand what was going on. We had to learn some painful, painful long-term lessons. Um, and I look at this moment, I think Cersei, I've always said um, Cersei uh, sees herself in Sansa. And, and there's some great stuff. Oh, I wrote it down here. Uh, uh, Shay, who's also throughout this scene here, um, Shay uh, has those. Uh, uh, there, uh, Shay on Cersei to Sansa. Maybe she hates you less than everyone else. Maybe she's jealous of you. I think a little column A and a little column B here. I really do. I I think Sansa uh, is or Cersei looks at Sansa and absolutely sees herself. Absolutely sees, uh, even though. Well, it's slightly different. I, I, you know, Ned. I don't necessarily think Ned kind of sold her off 
to Joffrey, uh, to like a horse to be ridden whenever you know, um, he wants, is what Cersei describes her marriage to Robert. I don't think it was done in that spirit, but it's the end result's the same. And Sansa was a pawn. She was a piece of, uh, of uh, you know, a, a plain piece on, on the board uh, to be joined, to join the houses. And that's the way of it. I don't fault Ned. I don't fault Ned for that. And she wanted it. She thought she wanted it at the time. That's a lot of what season one is for her, just kind of learning again of what's really going on, trying, trying hard. But here we are in season two, and she probably knows this is all true, but Cersei's in this moment deciding, I'm going to be the one to tell her what it is. And she revels in it because Cersei's just always slightly evil enough, which makes her just a wonderful, delicious character, right? Just just chewing up the scenery uh, there. But I really think the softer side of Cersei, buried deep down inside, wants Sansa to learn this. So should she survive? Doesn't mean they're friends, doesn't mean they're allies later on. But I think in this moment for this episode, that's what's going on. Have I shocked you, little dove? She wants to uh, shock her. Um, when Sansa kind of kicks back the ideas of, but you're the queen, you know, when, when Cersei's kind of like all these uh, hens in, in here and look, they'll go back to their cocks and, you know, crow about how, how good I was and I was the great uh, queen who inspired uh, them. And, and I love this moment because Cersei says, but you're the, or Sansa says, but you know, you know, ask me, like, but you're the queen. It sounds like you don't, sounds like you don't like these people. I don't get it. And uh, that's when Cersei says it, it, it was expected of me. I'm not doing this because I want to. I'm not doing this because I love these people. It's expected of me. And that is part of the stuff when I look at Cersei and I, and I say, I have so much sympathy and I root for her, but I, along the way, she's a hardening of the heart and, or, you know, just made some choices that are, that are bad that I try hard not to completely fault the character for or fault her for. I believe in personal responsibility and your, uh, your choices will kind of uh, determine uh, some, some of the outcomes there. But... Again, uh, this is a great moment for Sansa to see that and to see that, okay, uh, okay, maybe all those others, all this other stuff is true. Um, but what if, what if, what if I actually did like <laughs> these people? What if I actually did try to um, provide them inspiration and perfect and protection as best I could? And I think, and that shows a little bit later after Cecilia leaves. Sansa starts kind of singing a hymn, singing a song. Shay does correctly tell her to get on out of here. We're going to talk about that there. But I, I think that's one of the lessons that Sansa picks up here in this episode and that, that has meaning for me going forward. One of the other big perspective conversations and perhaps changes here is the Hound. And as I said, it's the Hound and his perspective on himself and who he serves and what he is doing here. There's trauma. There's undealt with trauma. The great Braun and, and, and him scene in the bar room. Um, we'll talk about that in a second when I talk about the favorite, uh, my favorite scenes and moments. But he breaks. It's one of the best twists in the story for me. I think we're, if you've watched all eight seasons and read all the books and studied Game of Thrones and celebrate Game of Thrones and Song of Ice and Fire like I do and a lot of you do, I think... I think we can all take for granted some of the big twists, but this was one of um, my favorite twists in the show. And by twists, by me, not these big plot twists, but just like a character shift. I think we're starting, and, and, and going back to the end of season one, we're starting to get a different view of the Hound. 
we're starting to see just a little bit more of, uh, of him, some other sides of him. Um, but this is the episode where the big, tough, menacing killer wants out. He can't get over uh, the trauma. He hasn't dealt with that. He hasn't really talked about it. He talks about it a little bit later on with Arya. Later on in the show, he'll perhaps find some purpose, but that purpose leads him back to the vengeance that he feels will finally heal him if he gets gets it. He is a killer, and he is serving a bad king, and he is serve, serving, outside of maybe yeah, Tyrion, who he has a weird relationship with. Uh, I think they deep down kind of like each other. Um but he's uh, he's not happy with all of it, and, and I think he can never. I think he feels he can never quite leave it. But in this episode, his perspective on himself changes. I had a view of myself. I don't want that view anymore. Tyrion is confronted with his own perspective again on leadership and heroes. As I said before, he plays the great game. He doesn't lead armies. His father and brother aren't there. And now the Hound has left. Joffrey bails, because of course Joffrey's going to bail. And in one of the great moments of the show, uh, Tyrion says to himself, I'll lead the attack. Oh, crap. I'll lead the attack. His perspective on what he feels he is to the story, to this moment, to his own life, has changed and changed pretty powerfully. That's where I think the show can, uh, why I'm here to discuss it like this. I think the show has inspirations and lessons all the way through it, other than just the fun, great stuff. And I think Game of Thrones got watched and got consumed a lot by theories and guesses, what's next in the plot. And that's a large part of the appeal of the show. And Damn well better believe I had them along the way. And damn well better believe I still have some with the stories yet to come. And when House of the Dragon emerges, I'll have plot ideas and theories. But I think a lot of these little moments, these little character moments can be overlooked. And and this is why I think the story, Game of Thrones, has staying power on the level of something like Star Wars, Lord of the Rings. Anything, any big franchise or story that moves you and, and, and can continue to connect with you in a very real world way. Peter Dinklage made that choice as an actor. And I, I think I talk about, uh, a lot about this in Game of Thrones, and I talk about it when I cover Star Wars over on Force Center. I, I'm not a great actor myself. Um, I've watched uh, very closely my, my uh, girlfriend and partner, Grace Hancock, uh, w- just a wonderful, talented actor. And I, and I watch her study uh, for um, auditions, and I watch her study for her roles that she shoots. And... I just watch uh, her break down the script and break down every line, make notes around every line about what the character's doing in this moment, what the character's thinking, what does the character want, what does the character fear, what is, every line is broken down. And often I think when pop culture stuff is covered here on this YouTube and here on a podcast and anywhere else, no fault of anyone. I'm not calling anybody out. I'm, not, I'm sometimes calling myself out more than anything. It's sometimes easy to misunderstand the process of making these stories if you've never done it before, you've never done it before. I've never cooked a, you know, cooked a, a, a gourmet meal. I have some thoughts on it, but my thoughts have no experience behind it. doesn't mean I can't talk about it. It doesn't mean I can't taste the meal and have an opinion on what the meal tastes like. But I, I, I should factor in the difficulty in preparing that meal. 
uh, when you write something down, put it in a script, that's not the end of the journey. When you get to the set and start shooting it, that's not the end of the journey. Often when you get into the editing room is where you remake the story again. Uh, Rachel Cushing here on Cashly Talk is a great editor. Knows uh, different forms, different styles of shows and movies and everything. And um, knows how to craft a story through editing. And this particular moment, if you, if you um, I believe it's D.B. Weiss talking about it, um, saying that Peter Dinklage in this moment makes a choice to do something that is different and, and not presented in the script and, and not thought of or not planned in the story. But the line is just, I'll lead the attack. But everything that Tyrion has experienced in this episode, to me, I'm not, to, I'm not Peter Dinklage. I haven't talked to Peter Dinklage about this. Love to. Uh, over drinks in a bar somewhere, not even on a show or a podcast. He, the moment in which he whispers to himself, I'll lead the attack, to me is the character looking back at everything in his life, but also everything in this episode. There's that great line we'll talk about later about him brawn and him holding the axe. And oh, I, I chopped wood once. No, wait. I watched my brother chop wood. He doesn't feel he should be here. That is his perspective on this battle. Yes, I want to defend the city. I've helped plan this. But someone else should be doing this. And often in our lives, we are, we are put in places where we feel someone else should be doing this. It's not me. So Tyrion says it to himself first. I'll lead the attack. And there's a look on his face. It's like, oh my gosh, I'm going to lead this attack. I can lead this attack. I have to lead this attack. And I am here. And my own perspective on who I am and who I am to this story and who I am to this moment in my life has just changed. And maybe I still doubt it, but I'm going to believe it. So he says it louder and screams it as written in the script. I'll lead the attack. I love this moment. It's one of my favorite moments in the show. Peter Dinklage is just a genius-level performer. Uh, There's so many great performers in this show doing just that, breaking down every line and finding the story in it and finding what your character thought, what your character wants, and what your character needs. And this is the the moment in the episode of just all the lessons about perspective and and, and belief and, and where you are. And what can change? And sometimes it can change even in spite of yourself. Even if you don't want to, you might have to. I think the Hound's going through that. I think Sansa's going through that. Uh, I think just the wars, the armies, the, the, the armies at war are going through that. The city's going through that. And Tyrion goes through it right here, right now. It is a beautiful moment. And it's small and it's wonderful. And that's it. This leads, uh, as I'm going through all this here, I don't want this to be a two-hour episode. <laughs> um. The Hound leaves the battle. That sets up uh, uh, Tyrion's great moment here in his great speech. We're going to talk about some of the lines. Sansa is pulled away from Shay and told to run away. Smart move. Shay, there's someone who knows the world. Love the moment where uh, Cersei snuffs out, uh, 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 kind of sniffs out uh, uh, Shay and tries to snuff out Shay. <laughs> we are about to get that confrontation, that story. Shay's bad curtsy leads to some problems, but it all kind of changes, and now Sansa's allowed to think off and go back to her chambers. And I think, you know, I think Shay's right. I think Stannis, despite his men probably prepared to do horrible things, and Stannis, uh, you know, looking the other way, as would be uh, kind of um, the way of the world at the time there. Um, I think Stannis, upon, you know, seeing Sansa, would make sure she's protected because, why? Well, she's a pawn. She's a piece. It's not because she's family. We need to keep her alive. Um, 
Maché's right to get Sansa away. And that leads to one of uh, my favorite scenes as well, and that is the Hound and Sansa. We've gotten a lot of them already. The Hound has saved the day. He's already given the speech. To, he says it, it, it's his go-to thing, you know? Uh, your father was a killer. He likes killing. Bronn, you're a killer. Oh, killer. We all love killing. And the Hound loves killing because it's the only thing that he feels he can do, I guess. I don't know. We can go into deeper into the Hound's um, mind some other time. Sansa returns to her chambers, and it's a, it's a great shot. It's a great moment. Other people have talked about it, without a doubt. Um, Sansa grabbing the doll Ned gave her. Uh, and to me, it's, it's Sansa literally holding her childhood and naivete in her hands. Hound, she discovers the hound in the room, and she holds that doll up as a shield. As a shield. A lot of characters in this episode have their shields. The hound's shield for a long time was him being a killer. He carries that shield forever. Cersei's wine, it might be her shield. Everyone's got shields. And, and Sansa just instinctively holds up, clutches this childhood. Let me hold on to this. And her perspective on villains and heroes is once again, not finally, but once again challenged. The world is built by killers, so you better get used to looking at them, says the hound. Sophie Turner, as Sansa, looks up at that moment and says, you won't hurt me. No, little bird, I won't hurt you. We're now, if you're not on the hound's side, you're definitely rooting for him now. Sansa has seen what a queen who doesn't really want to be queen in terms of helping people has done. She's gotten a, just a boatload of hard truths from Cersei. She has an idea of how she could lead better. She shows it by singing, singing with the, uh, the, the folks there. And I think in this moment, she gets advice that I do not believe God rest his soul. I do not believe Ned Stark would ever have given her. And it's a dark, cynical take. The world is built by killers. But it might not be wrong. I am someone personally in my life who believes, yep, there's a lot of reasons for things, a lot of reasons we can change things, but it's always deal with what is. We can't go back. We can only try to go forward and deal with what is. And, and there's sometimes some hard truths we all have to face. And sometimes it's... it's um, it ain't pretty for us personally. And, and I think Sansa faces it like an absolute hero in this moment when she looks up at the Hound. It's part of his great purpose in this story. It really hits me again with Hound and Arya in their final moments. Part of what the Hound brings to the story. Love that stuff. The whole, ooh, let's get to this here, this moment here with... Um, Cersei and her son, Tommen. Different Tommen, right? Yeah, 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 it is. This ends a great episode. We're going through so much. Tyrion has saved the day, but oh no, the other part of Stannis' army has arrived, and he's about to be, you know, almost killed by one of the the, the King's Guard. He is. His father's going to save the day, and that's going to, you know, everyone's cheering half man, half man as Tyrion saves the day, and that's gone. That's a memory. All these things going on in this great. Great moment and great editing and great pacing of Cersei now moving to the throne. Cersei with her son. Cersei 
knows she probably can't reach Joffrey. I think she knows season two is very much about her losing control over Joffrey. She's got, uh, Marcella's gone, of course, part of the problem this season, part of her uh, anger towards her brother. And, and, and anger, again, to just the system of what, of uh, you shipping off my daughter like I was shipped off. And that's, again, what she sees in Sansa and, 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 and Cersei's rightfully upset at the system. Everywhere in the world, they hurt little girls. She knows this. So she's trying to take uh, control of her destiny here in this moment because she understands hard, tr- hard truths. She understands when that door comes open and uh, Sansa, uh, excuse me, Stan- Stannis and his army come charging through. It's not going to be pretty. As she explains to Sansa early on about, man, if there's anyone else, anyone else I could seduce him. I can't, not Stannis, not good old, strong as an oak, do your duty Stannis. Uh, I guess you have to be a red witch uh, to get Stannis to uh, give up on his uh, what he believes. Uh, this is a great moment. I, I almost can't uh, capture it and describe it, but you all know it here. This is uh, her telling the story to Tom, and as she slowly um, opens up the tears of lease that she's going to uh, kill him with, again, perhaps, I, I think, kill herself. Uh, that's why Ellen Payne was there in, in, uh, in the uh, Maker's Holdfast, so she wouldn't have to go through whatever horrors were going to be... Uh, um, you know, she'd have to go through uh, with Stannis char- charging through that door. And this is a story on perspective. This is a story on perspective. She's telling the tale of the lion as the king of the jungle. The Kingswood, yes, the Kingswood. It's a tearful story to the son she believes is about to die at her own hands. You'll be king one day. All animals will bow to the lion. All animals will bow to the lion, and she runs the list. And I love that she talks about how the lion lived in the woods. Um, But other evil things lived in the woods like stags. And Tommen says, but stags aren't evil. But at this point, from her perspective, Cersei believes they are. And perhaps they are. But it's her perspective in this moment. It's her perspective in this scene. And all the animals will bow to you, my son. And they will put a crown and crowns upon your head. But the question is, who is that good for? Who is that good for? Tyrion, in inspiring the Lannister men to charge on out through the tunnels to defend the city, to defend the Mudgate, says plainly, don't do it for me. Don't do it for House Lannister. Don't do it for your king. Don't do it for anyone but yourself because you are the ones, the small folk. You're the ones who are fighting in our war, but you'll lose everything. They'll take your gold. They'll rape your women. So what is all of this good for? Cersei's perspective that all animals should bow to the lion. Is that good for the forest? Is that good for the jungle? Is that good for the Kingswood and all the animals in it? I don't know. I don't know. We don't need to find out. Tywin saves the day. Comes in with absolutely one of my favorite Tywin Lannister moments. The battle is over. We have won. Love that moment. The lump in my throat. The tension. The hands gripped as I was watching that for the first time in 2012. Boom, the door smashes open. and Is it Stannis? But I just saw Stannis being pulled back. (laughs) That's right, it's Tywin. 
The battle is over. We have won. And in that moment, I swear to you all, I was rooting for House Lannister. I was rooting for Cersei. I was relieved that she didn't have to kill her own son. I'm in a Stannis shirt. I, I like how Stark. I, I love Tywin, but I know he's a bad guy. This is what this episode did. It, it made you ask, what's the perspective? What is this good for? Uh, we're not liberating the city. We're, we're conquering it. And what's good for us, it's bad for them. And the cycle repeats. Danny wants to break this wheel, but how can you? All the animals will bow to the lion, but I ask, who is, who is that good for? We flow into this for the first time. Now, the reigns of Castamere has been featured a lot uh, during season two, singing it, Bronze sings it. Um, the song slowly starts to emerge. You start healing, hearing that. And I think, you know, that's a big setup for what, uh, what's going to happen in season three when that song starts playing up at the twins and, and Catelyn Stark realizes what's going on. It's not just to set up that clearly, but I think it serves that well. But in this moment, we are talking about perspectives and Tywin has won. He has won again. And we go into, uh, I believe it's the National, great band, uh, does a uh, this stunning, just... Just just wonderful version of Reigns of Castamere. What's that song about? Yes, it's about Tywin's uh, legacy. It's about one of his accomplishments. He defended his family's name and his, his, his dynasty and did what his father couldn't do, and he wiped out the reigns of Castamere because they dared stood up to us. We can't let that happen. If all the lesser houses stand up to us with impunity, what does that make us? I'm paraphrasing, but it's the stuff he tells Jamie. And the stuff he, quite frankly, tells everyone. With impunity is one of the favorite uh, go-to phrases for Tywin Lannister. It is a song about Tywin wiping out a family that dare said, why am I bowing to you? Our perspectives on this is different. Who are you? The proud Lord said that I might bow so low. Only a line of a different cloak. Only a line of different clock. I love this ending. I love what it means, and I love this battle. This is what is going on in this episode. Perspectives. It is a battle of perspectives, truly. We've got a great call here from Donald Long. I'm going to slap up a little screenshot there, if you're watching on YouTube, of uh, Cersei talking to Tom in here. And we've got a call here from Donald Long that actually... Um, Talks about this episode, but more importantly, talks about a big, a big what if. Let's have Donald take it away. Hey, Cash with Talk. We're finally at the Battle of the Blackwater Bay, and this episode gets more impressive every time you watch it because not only does it showcase what they can do with a higher budget later on in the series, what they get for battle episodes with the wildfire explosion in this episode, which is, I think, one of the best moments in the entire series, but also they saw the restrictions of the budget like they did early on in the season. So, like, with because if you notice, only the battle scenes take place in front of the mud gate or right on a beach landing area leading to a walkway with Stannis fighting on top of a wall. So that forced them to do, I think, are the best moments in this episode, the character moments with Cersei and Sansa, Tyrion, Joffrey, and the Hound. So I, this episode, for all them reasons, becoming one of my favorite episodes in the entire series overall. But here's a quick what if. What if Pyman walks in 30 seconds later? How does that change everything going forward? Oh, wow. Okay, this is great. Donald Long's What If. Yeah, it's perfectly timed, right? The uh, Tears of Lease are open. The bottle's open here. Uh, Cersei's about to pour that poison down her son's throat. Oh, it's not going to be good. 
Pycelle has set this up for us. We know this is all building. Oh, it's great writing. It's great structure. It's great. Just we're building to that. So the, we see sober Cersei getting the tears of Lee. So now we get this moment here. We know what this means. Boom. Tywin saves the day. At least from Tommen's perspective. I'll tell you what. If he does not show, he shows up 30 seconds later and Tommen is dead. And they don't have a king. They have an open throne. I, I think Tywin can find some strategies to make it happen. Joffrey is still on the throne. I get that. But I think Tywin already by this point knows Joffrey might not be the choice. I'm not saying he's trying to kill Joffrey at all. But more importantly, I think if if, if Cersei's dead, if Cersei has is, is done this to herself, as, as I believe is, was part of the plan. Time would be angry. Time would be upset. Time would uh, worry about his dynasty, worry about his legacy, worry about what to do next. I don't know if Cersei's death would have factored too much into his plan going forward, which is a horrible insight into one of my favorite characters. Is it a, is it a brushing of the of the shoulders? No, 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 no. He'd be upset, but I don't think he'd be upset necessarily that Cersei was dead. He'd be upset that a Lannister was gone. And what does that mean to the rest of the realm? That's part of his problem. Tywin is a great character, a smart leader. Not a great leader, but a smart leader. I mean, he's great, smart, but he's not nice. He's a bad guy. All that stuff, the the moments of of, uh, just kind of confession, the moments of truth from Tywin to Arya, just some of the power of those scenes. It's it's one of the only times we see Tywin with his guard let down, but we see his true self. And he knows how to win in this world. He knows Tywin. I don't know know if that was on purpose. He knows how to win. But what is his undoing? It's how he viewed his kids. He did not view them as individuals. He viewed them as, as... as, as pieces for his family, pieces on the chessboard. That's his undoing. So I think that's what would have happened. He would have been upset and used it for something further, would have used it to uh, inspire those to, to uh, seek out revenge, but I don't know if he would have cared, which might have been what Cersei uh, knew all along. Knew all along, and again, was part of his undoing. Great call, Donald Long. Great stuff, too, about the show. Quickly foreshadowing things with more meaning. So remember when Davos said, I said it up top, they don't see a liberator, he says to Mathos. They see a stranger come to set their city on fire. I'd love to clip that out and show that scene to Daenerys Targaryen on repeat. A lot more to come with Danny. As I've always, I try to make clear, any action Danny took, I pretty much fully support. But there's a lot of times where I think it was wrong. Not that she was wrong, but that the situation that she was in uh, she couldn't avoid it. She got herself in a bad situation. That there was, uh, you know, she's, as she slowly starts losing those around her who could be real good help for her. I wish, and, and people, I, I think people tried to tell her this, but this is why I say those themes, these 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 lessons, are all through the show. They don't see a liberator. They see a stranger come to set their city on fire, and when it finally dawns in uh, uh, Daenerys's uh, soul and her heart, as I, as I think when she's staring at the Red Keep in uh, season uh, eight, episode five, The Bells. I, I think I think that's... I'm not liberating the city. I guess I'm a conqueror. More to talk about that. More to talk about that. Uh, Tyrion and Shea have a great scene. It's a, it's a moment of a, kind of a true intimacy for me. Um, 
uh, and a connection. And I love Tyrion's line, you can't fuck your way out of everything. And she says it works so far. Um, again, for better or worse, tough life for Shay. She's prepared. She's got that knife. She's ready to stab anyone. They'll try to do any bad things to her. But this kind of gets her in the end, unfortunately. All right, let's talk about Stannis's moment. He has a great moment. He's a great moment. It's a great moment. I love Stannis. I'm Stannis the Menace. I'm a fan. Uh, after the wildfire, he has this great uh, come with me and take this city moment. It's a good speech. It's a good speech. Joffrey, talking about style of rule. Joffrey is hiding. He's scared. Stannis is right there. All right, yep. The dwarf has played his little game. He could only play it once. Um, let's go to the shores. Again, I think it's part of his strength. He's a leader in this moment. But I, I, as a Stannis fan, I always try to explain to people, I do love Stannis. A lot of it's because of Stephen Delane's performance. I love that what Stannis... I love kind of his starting point. Someone who does his duty and, and never gets credit for it and that sometimes has burned me in the past... I am moved by art that challenges me, and I'm moved by stories and characters that challenge me. And when I see myself in a character and then see that character make mistakes, see that character struggle, I, I, I don't get upset at that character. I, I try to learn from it as best I can, even while I'm still rooting for him. I was kind of I'm rooting for Stannis. I was rooting for Cersei, rooting for the Hound, rooting for a lot of people. But overall, I wanted my guy Stannis to be the queen, uh, king and, and have a queen. And, uh, you know, I wanted Stannis to win. But look at what this moment, this particular moment, the men around him know they can't win or they feel, and look, that's sometimes in life, you look around, you feel you can't win, you need someone to tell you, no, we can, and rah, 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 you're inspired and you go on. Uh, the, 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 the Stannis uh, Baratheon soldier tells Stannis, hundreds will die. Stephen Delane, so perfect, says thousands. Stannis is continuing to do what he always does. He's doing his duty. It's his duty. It's his right. The Iron Throne is mine by right, and it's my duty to carry that out. Whether anyone else wants that or not, it's my duty, and we all should keep keep to what is our duty. And that is what leads him to his defeat. We talk about stuff that's going to bring down Tywin. Stannis never wavers. That's kind of a good trait. But this is uh, what slowly and surely destroys him all the way up to his bitter end, the very end. He is consumed, as I always say, he's consumed by what he felt he deserved. And he never listens to anything else, and he only sees and hears what he wants to hear. A great moment for Stannis is what happens in the end of season four, saving the day north of the wall. But he doesn't do it for the good of the realm. He doesn't do it up there. He does it because it's part of his duty and a part part of what fuels into his ultimate goal, a goal, a desire that is destroying him piece by piece by piece. He had one final shot to walk away from this all. When he tries to take Winterfell, he had every opportunity, every reason to turn around. But like this moment, when everyone else around him is going, we shouldn't do this, he says, no, that's not what we're doing here. We're doing our duty. Let's take this city. Let's take Winterfell. And he does it and he goes to his doom. I love you, Stannis. I love you, Stannis. But you might have asked for this yourself. Mm. Uh, that's a big moment. Cersei hurting Lancel is a small moment, but oopsie, it's a great moment. She shoves him right where he's hurt, and he falls down. But watch out for when Lancel comes back. Favorite lines, moments, and scene. I mentioned I love Tyrion and Shay. The, of course, I'm afraid scene. Um, it's good to re- be reminded that the show successfully built their relationship, even better than the book. Something George R. R. Martin has said. He, he absolutely loves... Um, Sybil Kelly brought to the role uh, and and changed it a little bit for him as a writer. Curious to see, you know, how, uh, you know, um, 
Uh, well, never mind. Book spoilers. Um, love that scene. Love that moment. The show does a good, good job of connecting them. Uh, Cersei uh, getting the, the tears of Lys, uh, as I talked about, is a sur- uh, sober Cersei and knowing, um, knowing uh, that what she feels she has to do. And I, I love that moment. And Julian Glover, always great, even in understated moments, is Pycelle. I love when he's just kind of like, uh, who are these people I'm serving? And he walks off. Uh, Braun and the Hound uh, taking the drink after finding that common perspective. Talking about perspectives, well, they're both killers. And and the Braun's perhaps the first one to, to kind of look at the Hound and be like, mm-hmm. yeah, you're right. Uh, they talk about in the post credits here and the extra footage. Uh, if you ever watch the stuff in HBO, like they both they hate each other. They don't like each other. Braun's kind of the party guy, though. He doesn't necessarily hate. Hey, he doesn't want to fight the Hound, but oh, he's going to. I still my I I think Braun might have had the drop on him. Um. But it's because of who they serve directly, Tyrion, Joffrey, and their odds, everything. They, they're just kind of bred to not like each other. Uh, and I love that they find it. And, and, and they, um, the, the one more drink before the war, and, 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 and Hound makes a move. And they do, they do. I've always believed my headcanon they take a drink. I can't remember specifically if this encounter is in, in uh, the books. Probably not the way Braun is, is written in the books, but someone could correct me if I'm wrong. But, that, but Benioff and wife talk about it. Yeah, they, they have a drink. They sit down and have a drink. They have a little moment. And we have that great moment later on with Braun literally saving the Hound's life. But I think the connection was already there and, and it's going there. I love the line, like I mentioned, I chopped wood once. No, I watched my brother chop wood. Great. Uh, just great Tyrion lines. I always, uh, he's always uh, been a great romantic, my nephew. Uh, when, and Sansa says, uh, when, when Shay's like, you know, a, lot of, a lot of these boys won't come back. Sansa says, Joffrey will. The worst ones always live. Oh, so bad. Uh, I love how Jack Gleason plays the moment when he enters, uh, you know, kind of the battle. He's getting up to the battlements and that horse runs by and he just kind of, he's overwhelmed and scared. I think it's a very real moment. It's, it's sometimes hard to find empathy for Joffrey. And I don't necessarily think I have a lot of empathy, empathy or compassion for him in this moment, but it's so well played by Jack Gleason. Um, we, uh, the wildfire. Okay. Oh, I mean, yes, we, we, Don Long mentions in his call, but the wildfire remains one of the most memorable sequences. The brawn arrow, the silent beat as the arrow flies over. Um, Davos just kind of uh, connecting to it, seeing what's going on, but couldn't quite put his finger on it. Um, I love that moment. I love that sequence. Still one of my favorite moments. I think in any property, not just Game of Thrones, but anything. Love it, everything about it. I do love when Davos, uh, a little early on with his son, uh, Mathos, rest in peace, peace, Mathos. Lord Varys knows what you had for breakfast three days ago. There are no surprises here. Uh, great line about Cer- from Cersei about Tywin. She says, the gods have no mercy. That's why they're gods. My, my father always told me that. And Sansa's kind of like, your father doesn't believe in the gods? Well, he believes in them. He just doesn't like them very much. Love that. Uh, line here. This is this is a this is a you know a harsh line, but it's this is truth. And and if the city falls, these fine women should be in for a bit of a rape. Um, yeah, I think sometimes the show uh, goes into the rape trope a little bit too much, without a doubt. But this line in this moment for me carries, I don't know, carries it carries an important punch. It carries a, a hard truth. It carries a disgusting truth. Uh, Brienne and Jamie on the road running into the, the three women, uh, uh, hanged and, um, uh, the, it's Stark men that did it. It's one of those moments of just, uh, the, the true brutality of this world, but more specifically the true brutality of the, of, of the men in this world. A lot of, a lot of the men in this world is on display and it's there for you to see. It's there for you to be disgusted by if you want. And I think this line from Cersei to me is pretty important. Because she's telling Sansa in this moment. Oh, yeah, 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 that's right, that's right. You want Stannis to come conquer and save the day. Don't lie. I know you do. That's great. Sure. Here's what will happen. Here's what will happen. 
How do you survive that? It's tough. It's harsh. It's there. Um, this is your uh, city. Stannis means to sack. Uh, when Tyrion says that, I, I love uh, love that line. It's the war of the haves and has nots. Game of Thrones is about that in a lot of ways. There's a lot of things going on, but uh, what's going on in Flea Bottom is is often important and cannot be overlooked. Uh, I love Tyrion's line. Those are brave men knocking at our door. Let's go kill them. Very true. Very true. No way. Podrick saves the day. We got to shout out Podrick. Yeah, Daniel Portman saving Tyrion in that. And I mentioned it, perhaps the final line of this great episode, but perhaps one of my favorites of all time. The battle is over. We have won. Episode stars. I shouted out Lena Headey and Peter Dinklage. Just wow. Lena Headey just, wow. This is just, just frame this episode. Put it on a wall and say, acting. Uh, Same with Dinklage. The I will lead uh, the battle moment. So great. Uh, Rory McCann as Sandor Clegane has just, you know, he's got to make this work for us as an audience. We see it. It's not in a book. It's different. It's on our face. We got to see it. And I think he just is so good all through the show, but particularly in this episode here. And a little shout out to Rory Dotris as a pyromancer. Helene, um, he's since passed away, passed away in 2017. Originally was uh, perhaps going to be Picel. Health issues came in. They, they brought in Julian Glover, so they bring him in as a pyromancer. He's so great. We, we talked about him when he shows up in the, in the earlier in the season. Love everything about it. It's this horrible wildfire sequence, and he's just giggling and have be. Um, it's just great. I just love the way he plays it there. So, all right. That is our look at season two, episode nine. That is Blackwater, the Battle of Blackwater Bay. Thank you so much for all of you uh, listening, watching on the podcast. Uh, do me a favor. If you're listening, if you're watching on YouTube, go ahead and uh, download the podcast too as well. Help get those uh, get those clicks and views up. Yep, this is, this is still that kind of world too. Subscribe and like to this video here. We're trying to build up this channel here, but we are part of the Good People Association. Go to the gpa.fund for more information about that. You can follow me at Ken Knapsack. Love talking Game of Thrones. We're going to get ready to start talking all the news, House of the Dragon, animated series, a movie, and more. Dunkin' Egg. It's all going to be right here on Casterly Talk. See you next time. Bye.